Chapter 31 of The Missing Bride. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Missing Bride by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter 31 Dreams and Visions. Winter waned. Mrs. Waugh had attended the Commodore to the South for the benefit of his health, and they had not yet returned. Mrs. Morris and Alice were absent on a long visit to a relative in Washington City, and were not expected back for a month. Paul remained in Baltimore attending the medical lectures. The house at Dell Delight was very sad and lonely. The family consisted of only Thurston, Fanny, and Miriam. A change had also passed over poor Fanny's malady. She was no longer the quaint, fantastical creature, half-lunatic, half-seeress, singing snatches of wild songs through the house. Now here, now there, now everywhere, awakening smiles and merriment in spite of pity, and keeping everyone alive about her. Her bodily health had failed. Her animal spirits departed. She never sang nor smiled, but sat all day in her eerie chamber, lost in deep and concentrated study, her face having the careworn look of one striving to recall the past, to gather up and reunite the broken links of thought, memory, and understanding. At last one day Miriam received a letter from Paul, announcing the termination of the winter's course of lectures, the conclusion of the examination of medical candidates, the successful issue of his own trial in the acquisition of his diploma, and finally his speedy return home. Miriam's impulsive nature rebounded from all depressing thoughts, and she looked forward with gladness to the arrival of Paul. He came toward the last of the week. Mr. Wilcoxen, roused for a moment from his sad abstraction, gave the youth a warm welcome. Miriam received him with a bashful, blushing joy. He had passed through Washington City on his way home, and had spent a day with Mrs. Morris and her friends, and he had brought away strange news of them. Alice, he said, had an accepted suitor, and would probably be a bride soon. A few days after his return, Paul found Miriam in the old wainscoted parlor, seated by the fire. She appeared to be in deep and painful thought. Her elbow rested on the circular work table, her head was bowed upon her hand, and her face was concealed by the drooping black ringlets. "'What is the matter, dear sister?' he asked, in that tender, familiar tone with which he sometimes spoke to her. "'Oh, Paul, I'm thinking of our brother.' can nothing soothe or cheer him paul can nothing help him can we do him no good at all oh paul i brood so much over his trouble i long so much to comfort him that i do believe it's beginning to affect my reason and make me see visions and dream dreams tell me do you think anything can be done for him ah uh, i do not know i have just left his study dear miriam where i've had a long and serious conversation with him and what was it about, may I know? You must know, dearest Miriam, it concerned yourself and me, said Paul, and he took a seat by her side and told her how much he loved her and that he had Thurston's consent to asking her hand in marriage. Miriam replied, Paul, there is one secret that I have never imparted to you, 
not that I wish to keep it from you, but that nothing has occurred to call it out, she paused, while Paul regarded her in much curiosity. What is it, Miriam? he at last inquired. I promised my dying mother, and sealed the promise with an oath, never to be a bride until I shall have been, what, Miriam? An avenger of blood. Miriam! It was all he said, and then he remained gazing at her as if he doubted her perfect sanity. I am not mad, dear Paul, though you look as if you thought so. Explain yourself, dear Miriam. I am going to do so. You remember Marion Mayfield, she said, her face beginning to quiver with emotion. Yes, yes. Well, you remember the time and manner of her death? Yes, yes. Oh, Paul, that stormy night death fell like scattering lightning and struck three places at once. But, oh, Paul, such was the consternation and grief excited by the discovery of Marion's assassination that the two other sudden deaths passed almost unnoticed except by the respective families of the deceased child as i was then paul i think it was the tremendous shock of her sudden and dreadful death that threw me entirely out of my center so that i have been erratic ever since she was more than a mother to me paul and if i had been born hers i could not have loved her better I loved her beyond all things in life. In my dispassionate, reflective moments, I am inclined to believe that I have never been quite right since the loss of Marion. Not but that I am reconciled to it, knowing that she must be happy. Only, Paul, I often feel that something is wrong here and here, said Miriam, placing her hand upon her forehead and upon her heart. But your promise, Marion, your promise, questioned Paul with increased anxiety. I true. Well, Paul, I promised to devote my whole life to the pursuit and apprehension of her murderer, and never to give room in my bosom to any thought of love or marriage until that murderer should hang from the gallows, and I sealed that promise with a solemn oath. That was all very strange, dear Miriam. Paul, yes, it was, and it weighs upon me like lead. Paul, if two things could be lifted off my heart, I should be happy. I should be happy as a freed bird. And what are they, dear Miriam? What weights are they that I have not power to lift from your heart? Surely you may surmise. The first is our brother's sadness that oppresses my spirits all the time. The second is the memory of that unaccomplished vow. So equally do these two anxieties divide my thoughts that they seem connected seemed to be parts of the same responsibility, and I even dreamed that the one could be accomplished only with the other. Dearest Miriam, let me assure you that such dreams and visions are but the effect of your isolated life. They come from an overheated brain and overstrained nerves, and you must consent to throw off those self-imposed weights and be happy and joyous as a young creature should. Alas, how can I throw them off, dear Paul? in this way. First, for my brother's lifelong sorrow, since you can neither cure nor alleviate it, turn your thoughts away from it. As for your vow, two circumstances combine to absolve you from it. The first is this, that you were an irresponsible infant when you were required to make it. The second is that it is impossible to perform it. These two considerations fairly release you from its obligations. Look upon these matters in this rational light, and all your dark and morbid dreams and visions will disappear, 
and we shall have you joyous as any young bird. Sure enough, and I assure you that your cheerfulness will be one of the very best medicines for our brother. Will you follow my advice? No, no, Paul, I cannot follow it. In either instance, I cannot, Paul. It is impossible. I cannot steel my heart against sympathy with his sorrows, nor can I so ignore the requirements of my solemn vow. I do not by any means think its accomplishment an impossibility, nor was it in ignorance of its nature that I made it. No, Paul, I knew what I promised, and I know that its performance is possible. Therefore I cannot feel absolved. I must accomplish my work, and you, Paul, if you love me, must help me to do it. I would serve you with my life, Miriam, in anything reasonable and possible. But how can I help you? How can you discharge such an obligation? You have not even a clue. Yes, I have a clue, Paul. You have? What is it? Why have you never spoken of it before? Because of its seeming unimportance. The clue is so slight that it would be considered none at all by others less interested than myself. What is it, then? At least allow me the privilege of knowing and judging of its importance. I am about to do so, said Miriam, and she commenced and told him all she knew, and also all she suspected of the circumstances that preceded the assassination on the beach. In conclusion, she informed him of the letters in her possession. And where are now those letters, Miriam? What are they like? What is their purport? It seems to me that they would not only give a hint, but afford direct evidence against that demoniac assassin, and it seems strange to me that they were not examined with a view to that end. Paul they were, but they did not point out the writer even. There was a note among them, a note soliciting a meeting with Marian upon the very evening and upon the very spot when and where the murder was committed but that note contained nothing to indicate the identity of its author. There are, besides, a number of foreign letters written in French and signed Thomas Truman. No French name, by the by, a circumstance which leads me to believe that it must have been an assumed one. And those French letters give no indication of the writer either? I am not sufficiently acquainted with that language to read it in manuscript which you know is much more difficult than print, but I presume they point to nothing definitely, for my dear mother showed them to Mr. Wilcoxon, who took the greatest interest in the discovery of the murderer, and he told her that those letters afforded not the slightest clue to the perpetrator of the crime, and that whoever might have been the assassin, it certainly could not have been the author of those letters. He wished to take them with him, but mother declined to give them up. She thought it would be disrespect to Marian's memory to give her private correspondence up to a stranger. And so she told him, he then said that of all men, certainly, he had the least right to claim them. And so the matter rested. But mother always believed they held the key to the discovery of the guilty party. And afterward, she left them to me with the charge that I should never suffer them to pass from my possession until they had fulfilled their destiny of witnessing against the murderer. For whatever Mr. Wilcoxon might think, Mother felt convinced that the writer of those letters and the murderer of Marion was the same person. Tell me more about those letters. Dear Paul, I know nothing more about them. 
I told you that I was not sufficiently familiar with the French language to read them. But it is strange that you never made yourself acquainted with their contents by getting someone else to read them for you. Dear Paul, you know that I was a mere child when they first came into my possession, accompanied with a charge that I should never part with them until they had done their office. I felt bound by my promise. I was afraid of losing them, and of those persons that I could trust, none knew French except our brother, and he had already pronounced them irrelevant to the question. Besides, for many reasons, I was shy of intruding upon brother. Does he know that you have the packet? I suppose he does not even know that. I confess, said Paul, that if Thurston believed them to have no connection with the murder, I have so much confidence in his excellent judgment that I am inclined to reverse my hasty opinion and to think as he does, at least until I see the letters. I remember, too, that the universal opinion at that time was that the poor young lady had fallen a victim to some marauding waterman the most likely thing to have happened. But to satisfy you, Miriam, if you will trust me with those letters, I will give them a thorough and impartial study. And then, if I find no clue to the perpetrator of that diabolical deed, I hope, Miriam, that you will feel yourself free from the responsibility of pursuing the unknown demon, a pursuit which I consider worse than a wild goose chase. They were interrupted by the entrance of the boy with a mailbag. Paul emptied the contents of it upon the table. There were letters for Mr. Wilcoxen, for Miriam, and for Paul himself. Those for Mr. Wilcoxen were sent up to him by the boy. Miriam's letter was from Alice Morris, announcing her approaching marriage with Olive Murray, a young lawyer of Washington, and inviting and entreating Miriam to come to the city and be her bridesmaid. Paul's letters were from some of his medical classmates. By the time they had read and discussed the contents of their epistles, a servant came in to replenish the fire and lay the cloth for tea. When Mr. Wilcoxen joined them at supper, he laid a letter on Miriam's lap, informing her that it was from Mrs. Morris, who advised them of her daughter's intended marriage and prayed them to be present at the ceremony. Miriam replied that she had received her communications to the same effect. Then, my dear, we will go up to Washington and pass a few weeks, and attend this wedding, and see the inauguration of General Stone. You lead too lonely a life for one of your years, love. I see it affects your health and spirits. I have been too selfish and oblivious of you in my abstraction, dear child. But it shall be so no longer. You shall enter upon the life better suited to your age." Miriam's eyes thanked his care. For many a day Thurston had not come thus far out of himself, and his doing so now was hailed as a happy omen by the young people. Their few preparations were soon completed, and on the first day of March they went to Washington City. End of chapter 31